Yeah, there's like one really good gag where he, because he has triplets, he's taking care of this woman's babies. And he's like a single father. And he has to feed them milk, obviously, but he doesn't have bottles yet. So he takes... He takes like a rubber this is going. a rubber glove and fills it with like five milk bottles and it's he like cuts little holes in the tips of the yeah, fingers. Like an udder. Yeah, and he's like dangling it in front of them. But it's gross because it's a really nasty color for the it's like a gross beige uh glove instead of just like a white one or a clear one um, that's what i wanted to see jerry lewis covered in cum yeah, exactly like. the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along this route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet if you will he won't have a chance i challenge you to a duel It's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. It's very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. With me here today are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a theme for the week, a topic, and then the other two hosts program a double feature in response to that topic. And the theme I picked was in response to another theme that we just did. Andy had done a week on anger uh, that was also provided by one of our listeners, Dionisi. Dionisi, you get another shout out at the top of this episode, you superstar. Uh, but, you know, I, I was inspired by it too because I, you know, we, we've done it before, but I thought, you know, looking at films from the angle of just choosing a specific emotion that the film sort of embodies and represents was uh, an interesting way of kind of carving out some films from amidst, you know, the piles and piles of films we're always thinking about bringing on the show. And it, it results in some interesting pairings. And so Andy chose anger, and that pairing proved to be extremely challenging emotionally for all of us. And that's why it was such an inspiring week, all things considered. I mean, it was probably the darkest we had ever gone on the show. Um, some very intense films with some very intense subject matters that made a lot of characters very, very angry. So I thought, let's spin this around. Let's take an entirely different direction. Uh, and instead of like looking into the depths of uh, human hell, let's like look up to the stars. Let's think optimistically about cinema, about life, about the future. Who knows? And that's that's the groundwork I had laid for the boys here. I you know I said you know feel free to interpret it as you will, and I think that you both took it to heart and responded in a way uh, pretty much in sync, which is really nice. You know you were both like optimistic in in a similar direction, and I think it's very fitting that you know both of these films that very heavily feature music would naturally kind of be something people think about when they think about optimistic cinema. When you think about what music can do to your soul, and especially then how that translates to the act of cinema, to, to editing, to how everything is arranged, all these beautiful people having a great time with big smiles on their faces. Uh, so yeah, you guys certainly scratch the itch. I feel optimistic about our conversation. So March, uh, you, you take the lead here. You had the earlier of the two films. What do you got? Yeah, you know, it was difficult to 
sort of settle on something because I think optimism uh, in you know this country and its cinema has a very sordid history. Um, you know, for fifty years there was basically forced optimism in in the cinema. <laughs> yes. You know, and and that produced some some great works and some ambivalent works. You know, but ultimately uh, it's a complicated thing when we're talking about American cinema or any cinema, but often. Films that are optimistic feel cheap or corny or exploitative. Um, so I was trying to actually, like, yeah, come from the heart, you know, this week. Um, and it circled me back around to a film that I watched not too long ago, uh, but one that, you know, I would describe as like a good vibes only film and a film that I particularly enjoy because the stakes are so low and the conflict is so non-existent slash forced that I just find it all very charming. Um, and it's, uh, you know, People who know me online and off know one thing about me. That's I love car wash, you know? Uh, a lot of people do. It's a great film. But uh, this film that I chose is uh, sort of the uh, unofficial sequel or unofficial attempt to follow up Car Wash. And that film is The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh from 1979, directed by Gilbert Moses. Uh, this film, like Car Wash, was the brain, uh, you know, uh, brainchild of Gary Stromberg, music business PR man. And he thought, uh, we should, like Car Wash, make another sort of soundtrack forward film. And he put together uh, this project. And uh, this was his first time producing on his own. And he also uh, had a bit of a bad drug problem at the time, specifically cocaine. And that's not the last time I'm going to mention cocaine as it relates to this <laughs> production, which maybe I think relates to its optimism. Um, but so this is a, you know, on the one hand, it's a star vehicle for the basketball player, Dr. J, Julius Irving. Uh, it's a sort of high concept, you know, mashup of basketball and disco. We've got a full funky soul disco soundtrack uh, made by or sort of like organized by Tom Bell, one of the orchestrators of the Philadelphia sound of the 1970s. Uh, so it's, you know, a movie that has a lot of dunks and a lot of disco. And for me, that's a pretty good time at the movies. And if I may quote the Chad Gene Siskel, who said on WTTW in 1979, the fish that saved Pittsburgh isn't Citizen Kane. It doesn't try to be, of course. It's just a lot of great fun, good music, exciting basketball. <laughs> and that's... Yes, it is. <laughs> Gene Siskel, no stranger to, to nose candy himself, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. so uh, the plot itself uh, concerns the ball boy of the Pittsburgh basketball team, um, I can't even remember what they're called before they change their name. The Pythons. The Pythons, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, it, when it opens, right, uh, you know, Dr. J is on the Pittsburgh Pythons. They're the worst team in the league. They suck. They lose every game. Everyone on the team hates each other. And Dr. J's character, Moses, in particular, uh, has a huge contract and is supposed to be the star. 
uh, but everyone hates him because the team is bad. Enter ball boy Tyrone, played by James Bond III, future auteur himself. Bondler. Uh, Big time Bondler. And Tyrone, uh, one, you know, after one game, he's talking to Dr. J. And, and Dr. J brings up the fact that he's a Pisces. And Tyrone gets the idea to uh, reconstruct the entire Pittsburgh basketball team to satisfy the sort of astrological signs and chemistry of the situation. And so Tyrone uh, employs uh, the astrologer Mona Manju, played by Stockard Channing, to become the team's astrologist. And together, they put together a team of all Pisces full of oddball weirdos. Uh, and we'll get into that. You know, the colorful cast that's a very, like, Jimmy Carter era, like, rainbow coalition of, of people in this mishmash of Pisces. Uh, and together, yeah, you know, there are some setbacks here and there. But basically, uh, once they get all the Pisces on the team, uh, they just win every game. And they go Stop. all the way to the finals. Uh, and they beat Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the Los Angeles team. Um it's a sort of kind of a janky film, you know? The production itself had a lot of problems. Uh, Gilbert Moses, the director, disowned it. Um, didn't get the input that he really wanted. He wasn't really allowed to shape it the way he had hoped and kind of checked out at a certain point. And uh, the film is very, yeah, like slapped together, but I find it charming, funny. Uh, and, and a lot of great basketball, you know? And I think that's sort of the key for me. I think it's a very interesting historical document of that period before, you know, the great transformation of the NBA and the beginning of that. And this idea of basketball as creative expression is something that the film captures so well, which is not present in other films of that era, or even just the popular culture. In fact, uh, there's a very racist review of this movie that Frank DeFord published in Sports Illustrated, where he calls dunking a fad, you know? Just that kind of like white reactionary sort of stuff. So again, like in the context of Dr. J, who was one of the pioneers of dunking and the ABA style of playground basketball, that forms sort of the backbone of the film. So this film is also like a, a secret Dr. J biopic where it's like the playground game. That's what basketball is all about, not white guys passing. You know, it's about expression and black expression, right? And so I think that really comes through in the film and whatever else is compromised about it, um, and quite a bit is, I, uh, I'm very optimistic about it. It's a film that I just like love because of and in spite of all its faults. And I think it's just a, a fun time, you know? So uh, that was my, my optimistic pick, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, 1979. Thank you. I really, yeah, you, you sort of like this movie was like a lovely constellation, all these beautiful stars I was looking at that I, I enjoyed in pieces, but now I feel like the stars have aligned in your in your note about this film being majorly about the act of basketball as a creative expression. Um, I'm going to be like gestating over that idea because I do really think that captures what this film is. Uh, while Andy, you describe your film uh, that came out uh, after Marsha's film. That's why you're going second. What did you bring <laughs> to the table? Um, yeah, my, my pick was pretty 
you know, effortless, I think, on my part, you know, uh, I think I knew right away when you gave us the topic what I was going to to bring to the table. I sort of flirted with a couple other things because I don't always want to just go with my gut, with my knee-jerk reaction when the, the topic's thrown out. But I don't know, just the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I mean, this is just for me. It's, it is, uh, it, it sums up just about everything that, that I think you, you presented in terms of, you know, optimism and at least my reading of, of that idea, which is, you know, trying to maintain a positive outlook when life and the world seems stacked against you, you know, not giving in to the, the, the feeling that everything is, is hopeless or pointless in, in our lives. You know, um, this is a movie that I've loved since I first saw it as a child, when my dad sat me down and was like, you gotta, you gotta see this movie. And, uh, in many respects, it, it's sort of a throwback, uh, you know, spiritually to a film that I brought to the pod, uh, many moons ago, that film being The Five Heartbeats. It's a film that follows a similar structure and I think a, a similar vibe and certainly a similar subject matter. And that subject matter is soul music. The film that I brought is from 1991 called The Commitments, directed by Alan Parker. This is an Irish co-production, an Irish film, but of course Alan Parker's a British director. This film is set in Dublin in the early 90s and in a very poor area of Dublin, the north side of Dublin. And our film is about a group of individuals, a group of oddballs, much like in The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, uh, who come together to uh, create a, a soul band, to create an outlet, to create an escape from their socially and sort of economically depressed lives. Um, there is a sort of like main character, but it's really kind of an ensemble film. But um, the sort of, I guess, catalyst for the forming of this band is a young fella by the name of Jimmy Rabbit. And he is sort of tasked with becoming a manager for these sort of like fledgling, this like fledgling wedding band. And they sort of ask him, hey, can you kind of help us? Can you help manage us? And he says, okay, and he signs on, but but right away he starts to make changes. And, and the biggest one being that the whole sound, the whole vibe of the group needs to have an overhaul and that they need to start playing Dublin soul. They are working class individuals and... Uh, Jimmy Rabbit explains soul is the soundtrack for the working class. From then on, they they uh, collect other weirdo band members. They form this this group called The Commitments, and the film follows their sort of brief rise and fall as group. Um, but you know, Parker uh, 
was sort of put onto this because uh, he had read the novel. It's based off of a, a novel by the Irish novelist Roddy Doyle. And it the was novelist's film. The novelist's <laughs> film. Dude, he wrote yeah. the screenplay. And he, well, he, he oh, wrote right, the, yeah. yeah, he wrote the initial screenplay. So the, the, the book was like a big, you know, success. And uh, so naturally they were sort of like, let's, let's adapt this. And Roddy Doyle was, you know, given first crack at the screenplay. But I guess pretty quickly they were sort of like, hey, this guy's not a screenwriter. So they brought in a few other people to, to sort of whip it into to shape. And Roddy Doyle, like, subsequently has, like, kind of talked shit a, a little bit about the movie and, you know, his book and what his initial vision was. But, like, uh, yeah, Alan Parker comes in and, and, and he grabs the material and did some really interesting things with the 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 movie um he did not want to work with you know established actors for the most part uh he spent months in preparation for the film finding the right people to play these parts and he specifically was looking for working class struggling musicians in and around dublin uh and and so for the most part the cast is almost entirely made up of actual musicians, actual singers uh, that had basically their debut with this movie. In in certain respects, I think it, it communicates a lot with the sort of, you know, the, the journey and the story that you laid out with The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh because you have these sort of like, you know, people more or less playing themselves in the film and it is a a love letter to soul but it's also the film that that sort of like built careers for a lot of the people involved in the in the production um yeah it's it's i think a movie that like really captures the spirit very well of of like what Parker was going for, you know, it is not a bright and sunny movie. There's a lot of really like depressed Irish locations that they focus on. Again, that sort of like working class spirit. Um, yeah, it's got great music, you know, like Marsh's film. It's sort of devoid of conflict, I guess, on a certain level. I mean, I guess there's a question of will they make it as a band, but that's not really what drives the film. What drives the film are some really awesome musical numbers and good times had by all in spite of the sort of like odds of the world being stacked against everybody. Um, yeah, I think it's just a movie that, that sort of puts a smile on my face no matter how many times I've seen it. And uh, I think it's got a really great outlook. And somebody said, I don't know where, I was just like reading various reviews and you know, uh, reflections on Alan Parker and, and people have said, you know, this is probably the most optimistic movie he ever made. And he certainly made <laughs> certainly. a lot of very dark, yeah. very dark <laughs> movies. So as far as optimism goes for Parker, I think this is, uh, about as, uh, uh, bright and sunny as it gets. Um, yeah, that's the film that I brought the, the commitments. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. I think, Marsh, you, you, you touched on something I forgot to bring up in my introduction, which was one of the reasons I was excited about this topic. The idea being that optimistic cinema is challenging because it's so easy for it to be really grating and very annoying and not, you know, truly inspiring or doesn't truly inspire the feeling of optimism in the viewer because cinema has struggled with optimism 
and I, that was one of my kind of inspirations for picking the topic was we're kind of pessimistic, cynical guys, yeah. you know, uh, we're not ones that really gravitate towards optimistic cinema on the regular necessarily. And I've always been interested in films that really are legitimate works of art with an optimistic outlook on life. Cause I think it's actually like an extremely challenging thing. It's easy to be a cynic. It's easy to be pessimistic, uh, when you're confronted with nothing but injustice and cruelty, uh, everywhere you look, you know? Right. And think about what a lot of people, you know, when they, where they turn to in situations like that, they do turn to music. And I think it is interesting that both of these films do so heavily feature it. And it's funny how you both also then highlighted the fact that in these optimistic films, there's, there's seemingly kind of very little conflict. And honestly, after I finished both these films as a double feature, a very pleasant double feature, I kind of looked at Molly and I said, these like aren't, these are like not even movies. You know, these are just <laughs> like, <laughs> these are just like big jam sessions. I, I especially felt it with the commitments because after a oh, point, yeah. I'm like, God, th- I mean, this movie is what, like an hour 45, or it's two hours long. I'm like, I feel like an hour of this movie is just tunes. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just them playing songs and obviously they're not playing songs in the fish that saves Pittsburgh, but think about the percentage of that movie of how much of it is just wall to wall music with like things happening while the music's playing. Right. And I mean, for what it's worth, they both made me feel optimistic during those moments. The music kind of carries you through the fact that neither of these films really have a conflict, which I think is, you know, impressive in and of itself. Um, But yeah, I guess that was something I was thinking about initially with these two films is that, you know, in that lack of conflict, it's a little easier to kind of buy in (laughs) to the optimism of it all because the roadblocks are things that you feel like will kind of inevitably be taken care of or at least resolved in a way that is like natural. Because even with the commitments, right, they're not going to become big superstars, but you never really have that expectation. You know, you're just like happy to watch everybody try and make the best of the situation they're in. Yeah, both films are about groups of people coming together. And I think that's something that, you know, most people enjoy in the cinema, whether it's the fucking Avengers, you know, (laughs) uh, coming together or, uh, yeah, you know, like Harlem Globetrotters coming together uh, with Jack Kehoe to uh, win basketball championships, you know. (laughs) Um, And I think, yeah, that's a that's just a fun thing to see something like take shape uh, and and the joy, fleeting moments of joy, perhaps, but the joy that comes with like being in a band or being on a team, being a part of this ensemble, right? And of course, like with the inevitable, uh, you know, comparisons of basketball to music. Basketball is like jazz, right? It's an ensemble, but individuals get to shine, you know. And it's like the same formula in. Um, in the commitments, and there's even a funny bit about that where you know the the trumpet player or saxophone yeah, the, player, the saxophone player. Uh, he 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 gets into jazz during their time, uh, and he starts to become like a jazz guy uh, and trying to like you know noodle in the middle of these soul songs inappropriately. Very yeah. very funny. Um, <laughs> I love all like the the jazz jokes in there. You know, like when he rolls in with a new haircut, and he's just like, "That's a jazz haircut." Yeah, jazz is a no-no in the in the world of soul. That's true. And, you know, that kind of makes me think about then, I guess, something without being a cynic that did kind of 
separate these two films for me and make them like kind of distinctly different is thinking about the difference between something that's very organized and something that is more free-flowing like jazz. And I think that it's interesting how the commitments really feels like it kind of sig- it signals what was to come for these types of movies. I mean, I'm trying to think about other films about like starting a band in the UK, you know, prior to this. I'm sure there's plenty that I just haven't seen, but it does seem like the kind of film that's setting a standard, right? Because when I think about any other film I've really seen after The Commitments from 1991 about a group of young Brits trying to start a band, it really feels like they're following this formula that was like really set in stone with the commitments about like the working class group getting together, starting a little band while the fish that saved Pittsburgh really has that distinct quality that makes me think of the seventies, even though it's 1981 of just this type of loose. No, it's cinema. 79. Oh, 79. Sorry. Yeah. It's the seventies, baby. It's the seventies. Yeah. It's it's yeah, yeah. It, it has like a distinct seventies flavor of a type of cinema that yeah, truly just didn't really seem to exist outside of that decade. Just some grainy weird thing that has very little conflict or incident. And it is just, I mean, generally a hangout type of, of film, but it just has this kind of like floaty wispy quality that you really only find in, 70s lower budget productions like this so in that sense i was that was something that separated these two films where one really seemed to be setting a trend setting a standard of like kind of a cookie cutter what would become a cookie cutter formula and another one that is kind of impossible to really replicate without just having existed in 1979 yeah being like out of your mind on quote coke and quaaludes you know (laughs) exactly yeah i mean i'll I'll say it like honestly uh, the Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, I mean, it's easy to kind of call it a non-film, you know, and I guess like where I'm, where I see you sort of going with it, Ryan, is like, this was unlike any movie I'd ever seen before. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a movie that like speaks its own language, you know, it's a movie that like sets its own structure i guess if you even can call it like having a structure i mean it has a flow it has a beginning a middle and an end but like man you know everything that happens in this movie is so outside the realm of other cues you would take from other like sports movies for example yeah or Mm -hmm. musicals right it's it's sort of like picking and choosing like components from all these other established genres and creating something like wholly original and an original isn't always like, uh, uh, you know, something that, that, uh, is necessarily a mark of greatness, but it's, it's always for me, like a mark of something like special and something unique. And that's exactly what this movie is. I mean, it's, it's an oddity. It's, it's a relic from the past, but also from the future at the same time, yeah. like this, or, or like another dimension yeah. of, of, of a world, a, a cinematic world where like anything is possible, you know, like yeah. I kind of was honestly thinking about belly when I was watching this movie <laughs> yeah. a lot, you know, sure. because it is like a, a, a piece of music with images more than it is like a movie with music behind it somehow Mm -hmm. like the music and there's really compelling images in this movie at times you know but like honestly i felt like the music was so much more like the presence 
of like what was driving the film. And maybe that's yeah. also because the songs are always commenting directly on the action, you know? And they're so, it's like the music is just so big on the soundtrack. It's not in the background, it's in the foreground. And there's cool shit happening as well, like on the screen. But like, man, yeah, it's, it is an oddity, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I remember the music more than the dialogue. Yeah, sure. And, and that's, you know, part of the, the failure of the film uh, was that, like Car Wash, they were banking on record sales, but none of the songs really took off, and people attribute that to their specificity yeah. and their weirdness, because they are, <laughs> you know, like, the, the, the songs are about the astrologer, you know? Like, Mona! Yeah. Like, that shit's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And it is Because if you haven't seen the movie, yeah. you're be like, who's this fucking yeah. Mona chick everyone's singing about? Yeah, know? why is this guy singing about Pisces shit? Like, what <laughs> but is then again, this? it's like so specific that I'd think you'd sit and listen to this record and you'd be like, it's like a disco opera, you know? Yeah, it's a concept album. You know? Right, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean... I think it's great. I think, yeah, I mean, again, it's like Car Wash. Like, you know, this is in Norman Whitfield, but, like, these songs are amazing. They really are. And you get performances in the film as well. And, you know, one of the reasons that they hired Gilbert Moses was because he had... Uh, a background in composing for theater mostly, but uh, he's a really fascinating figure too uh, in the context of this film. Because again, talk about like, yeah, this this film is wholly original. Um, Gilbert Moses was, you know, originally like uh, a child prodigy from Cleveland. Uh, who eventually went and like studied at the Sorbonne when he was like a teenager and studied French literature. Um, and then he got involved with the uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and became a civil rights activist. And then he formed uh, a company called the Free Southern uh was it called Free Southern Theater uh, that did, you know, like African-American plays in the South for free in, in like rural towns and Street shit. Theater, yeah. Right. And he was this like, you know, stalwart civil rights figure. And he always wanted to break into film and television because that's where, you know, eyes are, of course. And he is actually the only black director that worked on Roots uh, in the 70s. So he got a lot of TV cred um, throughout the 70s. And he also directed one other feature in his career besides Fish, Willie Dynamite from 1974, which was one of the rare Hollywood funded black exploitation movies at Universal. Um, really good movie and a, and a really biting satire. And he was known for his satire and comedy. And that's actually, he like split from his theater homies because he wanted to do like radical satire and they wanted to do like dramas and shit. So he always had that satirical bent. So like he's composing songs for these, these things. And he seemed like, you know, a guy like Michael Schultz in car wash. He'd be like Gilbert Moses. This guy's perfect to, to direct this film. And then he gets in there and he's like, what if we made this more real, you know? And they were very resistant to that. And I think you can imagine very easily 
where this movie's not as much of a caricature, it's not as much of a cartoon, and you could actually turn it into this sort of like urban drama. But that's not what happens. No, no. <laughs> you know? See, that's the thing. Like, you describing all of that, you know, it's like, you know, the, the satire. It's like, this is, there's nothing satirical no, no. about the fish that saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's just so earnest. Everything is so earnest. And like, you in your intro saying that he kind of, like, at a certain point, maybe mentally or creatively kind of checked out, I think on that level, it, it shows because it's just like, Everything is just so like straightforward and honest. It's so honest that it's like there's no humor in it, you know? Like, I mean, there's like humor in the movie, Plenty. but it's, it's, there's no like bite to it, yep. you know? There's no self reflection in the humor, really. Maybe a little bit with Jonathan Winters because he seems like he's trying to do something, you know. <laughs> the evil owner, the yeah, good owner. Yeah, and you know, there's like you know he he makes attempts at like racial jokes, you know, and that sort of thing, and like white exploitation of black athletes in in sports. But it's like toothless, I, honestly. Yeah. But I, here's the thing about Jonathan Winters. I don't want to get too like ahead of ourselves on this. I felt like he was. You know, they got him involved and he's just improving. Like none of the stuff that he said felt scripted at all. Like it felt very much like they're like, we got Jonathan Winters, let him go. And and a lot of his stuff, like he's saying, no one is like picking up on it or reacting to it. He's just kind of like saying it, you know? And so like there's a thread there where I could see him trying to do something. Like he makes a joke at one point. Okay, I want you to get a note off to the LA boys because they're going to win and they're going to win. Big. Uh, I want to send him some little goodies. Uh, some uh, something in the in the order of a of a basketball, maybe a paper mache with their initials on it. Kind of cute, cheap. Um, how about some exotic fruits from the islands, our islands? And so this is this is unique. Get this. Get this down. Black things for black players and white things for white players. No, no problems. You know, I mean, it's like it's weird what's sort of going on in this movie where it feels like there's a lot of different people involved and, and no one really kind of has a clue of like what they're really like, what everyone else is trying to do. Like, yeah. like the way you kind of described it of like a team sport played by individuals that, that feels very much like what's going on here with a yeah, lot with of With the production yeah. itself. With yeah. the production itself. I yeah. mean, I read that Gary Stromberg was banned from set for erratic behavior, and he's the producer of the film. <laughs> and I also read that Gilbert Moses and his wife, Dee Dee Bridgewater, got arrested by Pittsburgh PD for coke possession. Oh, boy. So there was trouble in the production, and reflecting on it later, I was cracking up. Stromberg said... Uh, it's a miracle we got the thing finished <laughs> and i'm like that's the fucking spirit you yeah, know but yeah. they did finish it you know and the, the film holds together you know you can see the seams but it, it's held together uh there's errant plots there's things that are sort of developed and dropped i mean it's it, it's all over the place except for the fact that you know like ryan was talking about the commitments like Yes, this movie's also like half basketball. Like there's yeah. just like montages of basketball, endless. Yeah. Yeah. They're like three full games. Endless yeah. montages of basketball, just as there's like endless musical numbers in the commitment. Because yeah, ultimately it's about like that moment uh of everyone, you know, playing. You know what it reminded me of? 
going vertical in that sense. Yeah. If you remember our discussion on going vertical, like that movie also kind of had like no conflict because the outcome was preordained preordained, and it's really just all about this sort of like build up to this moment that everybody like knows, you know, and it's all telegraphed and it's just as we described, it's just then we just watch a basketball game, you know, like minute by minute. That's very much how it felt like in the final like act of this movie. I was like, oh, dude, it's like full going vertical here. You That's know, the just, Russian movie, right? Yeah. 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 That movie, they literally <laughs> puts the time on the screen and like the full game is played, Whoa. basically. Yeah. Almost you, real time. Yeah. It's not complete real time, but yeah. I will say one thing that was kind of missing from The Fish That Saves Pittsburgh that I brought up quite a bit when Molly and I were watching. I'm like, what's the score? Like, let me see the scoreboard. I was like getting some of these games, but I had like no real sense of where we were at. I mean, because generally they're just winning because they're all Pisces. But like <laughs> when there is like some conflict about like the stars not being totally aligned, I was wondering like, well, where, where are we actually at with the with Well, this here's game? the thing, Ryan. You got to understand that this was a different era. We are very far away from the era where the score is on screen at all times. You know, even when Andy and I were growing up watching the Bulls in the 90s, the score was not permanently on the screen the way it is today. Mm. It would sort of fade in and out during lulls, um, sort of controlled by the broadcast. And so imagine what it was like in 1979. There was probably like, you would go to commercial and show the score. Otherwise, like, yeah, the announcer would say it, but they're not like showing you it, you know? And in fact, part of like this movie too is like Dr. J was not on television in the ABA. They didn't have, his team didn't have a TV contract. So he became a folk hero in America and a word of mouth figure of people like, you got to see this guy dunk, but it's not on TV because he's not in the NBA, he's in the ABA. Now, by the time they made The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, he was in his second year in the NBA. So people had seen him, they'd seen him dunk, but this is still kind of like, introducing Julius Irving to the world, you know? And it even has a sequence that's like a commercial for Dr. J, where he goes to the playground to show uh, Toby, you know, Tyrone's sister, mother. Not clear. <laughs> that Not is, clear, that yeah. relationship. I mean, oh that's another God. thing. I mean, we're going to have to get into that, but like... The social worker? Yeah. Uh, and he goes to the playground, and that's maybe actually my favorite sequence in the film, where it just dissolves of Dr. J dunking in this expressionistic playground, like, nightscape. Dude, it's batshit, dude. dude. It's, it's fucking... It's, it's batshit. It's deranged. I mean, and like... And I mean that in a good way, but it's like... <laughs> The funniest thing about that sequence that I was reflecting on, aside from, of course, like the gorgeous images of like one of the greatest basketball players ever, just like, just again, like you said, kind of like taking a solo for a minute there, you know, because he's just by himself. But that the sequence was like set up in this like kind of confrontation he was having with this like social worker and, yeah. and her kind of like. Being like, we got to talk about this. This is really serious. And he's like, all right. Hold on. Yeah, I'm going to tell you all about it. And then it's just him playing basketball and she's just like watching him, you know? And I was like, He's got the voiceover. Yeah, I mean, I I guess so. But I was just kind of like, that's a weird way to settle like an argument you're having with somebody. Well, no, because he says, you know, he's like, look, uh, you know, 
because she's worried about Tyrone and his dreaming as this ball boy who's basically in charge of this basketball team. She's like, he's not doing his homework. He's hanging out with you. And I understand that he's like, all right, hold on. Let's watch me dunk. But (laughs) he, he does say, you know, he says like, I had to learn to squeeze through that hole, as you call it, for my future. It was serious business, not play. I had to learn to walk and lean on air. I had to learn to listen to the rhythm inside my body. I had to learn to push myself, to see how far I could go. I had my dreams then, just like Tyrone has his. You gotta understand, like, this isn't just basketball's not a joke it's not just fun like i put in countless hours of hard work to get out of the hood to become this basketball player it's not just because i was born tall yeah other you know other people are born tall i had to fight to get where i am you know because she was kind of disrespecting the profession of basketball as well but again it's just like then she's got to sit and watch him. And then him she for, just has to watch him fucking dunk. For it's 15 so minutes. It's like, a, you know, like, dude, that scene to me, like, predicts Michael Jordan, you know? Sure. And, like, the way he would be shot by Spike Lee and the way he would be shot in commercials and those tapes, the Jordan tapes I've got upstairs learning to fly. feel like that shit is, like, stealing angles from the fish that saved Pittsburgh. Interesting. You know? Yeah, that scene is, like, borderline experimental. It is yeah, crazy. It is, like, an an absurd flourish in this movie because Andy you were talking about how it's just so earnest and so honest this whole time and that moment I couldn't tell if it was like as pure as it could possibly get because he does they're in that confrontation they're arguing and it's like he he quiets her by saying like just watch you know like hold on hold on it's like when she's finally developing all her reasoning he's like no 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 hold on watch and then be, with the amount of dissolves, I think your estimation is good, Andy. Like, she was probably watching him dunk for, like, 15 minutes. And <laughs> Three that, hours, at least. Yeah, like, that's... <laughs> imagining that scene without the music and the voiceover of him just, like, this woman borderline weeping because she's nervous for, again, her son or brother. We Like, a little confusing. And him just, like, saying, quiet down. And then imagine no music or anything and him just dunking, like, in the middle of the night. Just, like, the only the sound we're hearing is the ball, and she's just, like, <laughs> watching. Because the thing you don't also see is, like, there's got to be a lot of moments where that ball just, like, bounces off down the court somewhere, and he's just got to go, like, walk over and pick it back up, you know? Like, there's probably also a lot of, like, downtime, yeah. you know? It wasn't all just an unbroken, you know... Right bunch of like dunks you know (laughs) after 10 minutes she interrupts and he's like hold on yeah you'd have to be like can you throw me that back here you know and she's like but look we were talking about tyrone you know and now you're just you're just just dunking yeah it it made me it made me think of that like that like simpsons episode where like the satellite crashes and it's like major league baseball satellite or whatever that's spying on everybody and then mark mcguire shows up and he's like do y'all want to know the horrible truth or do you want to watch me sock some diggers? And they're all like, diggers! And then it's just Mark McGuire hitting like home runs and everybody watching him, you know? Like, yeah, it's the same thing. You know, I would say, you know, um, since we were kind of like talking about the music a little bit in, um, you know, how the music is presented in, in The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the specific numbers a little bit more as the film goes on. But like, you know, I think it's interesting to compare it to how the music is presented by the film, the commitments and Alan Parker's like choice for how the music was going to be presented. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it is so 
in the fish that say Pittsburgh, right? It's like a, dis- a disco movie. So you have this like really produced music. It's it's blasting on the soundtrack. It's often non-diegetic. But in the case of the commitments, Parker really wanted to sort of make a musical, but like a, for the most part, like a diegetic musical where the musical numbers are all like within the world. Like we're seeing the music as it's being presented to us. And it's certainly sweetened and there are other musical drops that come in, but like for the most part, when we're seeing the, the commitments play. And I think again, as you were sort of describing it, like a lot of the movie is just these, these musical numbers. It's the band rehearsing, getting better, their first gig, right? We are basically watching a musical. We're watching musical numbers, but they seem as if they are. And I mean, they don't seem, they are for the most part, like a part of the character's journey, you know, from, from their first formation. And even prior to that, like that whole extended montage of just the, the band tryouts, basically. That was my, probably my favorite scene of the movie. And I think it's, awesome that both films had like tryouts yeah yeah big auditions yeah it speaks to something about these optimistic movies of like everyone's coming out to try out for this exciting new thing you know but yeah andy that scene was cracking me up all the different people uh, all their different responses and even like the family's reaction to the different kinds of music presented like when someone starts doing like irish music and the sisters just start like doing their irish dances in the background (laughs) or like the mother loving like the crooner you know yeah She's like singing along with a girl who's doing a number from Les Mis, you know, and she's like, I love it, you know, <laughs> yeah. Still I dream he'll come to me, that we will live the years together, but there are dreams that cannot be. In the haze of a drunken hour, but heaven knows I'm miserable now. Yeah, I know how you feel. Elvis was a Cajun. What do you play? I used to play uh, football at school. I mean, what instrument? I don't. So what are you doing here? Well, I saw everybody else lining up, so uh, I thought you were selling drugs. But Jimmy is looking for soul musicians, you know? And right. there's a lot of, like, really good, like, music jokes, like, throughout the film, just about, like, music and taste and influences. Like, I even love, like, when Jimmy is being approached to become the manager by these two dudes who are, you know, part of the wedding band, and he's just like, well, why do you think I'd be a good music manager? And one of the guys is like, well, you were the first one to be into that Frankie Goes to Hollywood album. And you were the first one to know it was shite, you know? And it's like, that's <laughs> the justification for why he'd be a good manager. Right. But yeah, in that like audition sequence, like so much of it is before people even playing, just him being like, who are you into? And just slamming the door on people's faces, yeah. you know? He's kind of a prick. He's kind of a prick, but you know, that's part of the, the point, you know? Yeah, because yeah, sure. that's the thing. It's like, I get that they're looking for soul, but it was so funny how so many of those people that were coming up, and he's like, what's your influences? And they would share it. 
you know, some of them were legitimate, like cool influences and they seemed like they'd probably be good musicians, you know? And I was like, oh, come on, you're being a little harsh, Jimmy. Like, you know, let these people get a shot. I did think it was funny just like mentioning Jimmy. I did want to like get out in the open that, you know, every now and then you just like have a character in a film or maybe it's like a performer that just like drives you crazy, you know? And for me, it was like definitely Jimmy. And it was actually kind of like funny when I looked up later, I was like, what the, I'm like, this guy looks so familiar. I was thinking, what is he in? And he's in nothing at all. No. And I think it's just because he looks like James McAvoy, maybe, that I thought, you know, who is who is this guy? But it was I liked how it worked in the movie because my first reaction when I saw this guy trying to be so cool and to, like, be this manager, I'm like, this guy is such a fucking loser. Yeah. I, I hated this little Irish dweeb. And it was driving me crazy, but I thought it worked so well for the film because it's like yeah of course who's this guy that's just like claiming he has taste and he's trying to put together a soul band in dublin you know with all his buddies like that's who this guy would be <laughs> and in that sense i really liked the performance but i did like oh, yeah. in my deep down like really despise this jimmy guy i thought he was so annoying but again effectively used yeah i think it like works in the context of it too because i just kept thinking like yeah he's the fucking manager everyone hates the goddamn manager you know and i think that's one thing that i think this film does well with regards to like band stuff is that like the band has a lot of tension like most bands. Yeah. You they, know, they do not get along. They the don't. Part. And, and you know, like they have their moments of fun, but like, they also kind of all like various people hate each other. Various people fuck each other. You know, it's like a real pop boiler. Uh, but like Jimmy is having the least amount of fun, you know? <laughs> and it's like so perfect. And it's so appropriate that he's also like the arrogant guy that put this into motion because he was this brash sort of like, ego maniacal sort of like music guy i know people like that well dude he's he's very i mean you know he's very much like uh somebody else we visited like tony wilson right from uh 24-hour party people i mean it's like the same character you know he's the know-it-all he's the guy that's faking it till he makes it and he's got to act that way you know everyone's pissed they're not getting paid everything is being borrowed begged and stolen i mean literally at times you know but like yeah you know he's he's an asshole you know what's interesting too right i don't know if you noted noted this if you read about it or not but he was not originally cast as jimmy rabbit he was originally cast as deco the lead singer, oh. the prick lead singer who everybody hates. Also an arrogant asshole. Yeah. But uh, Alan Parker, I mean, he was cast. I mean, he was cast in that role. And then Alan Parker saw uh, Andrew Strong, this guy, audition, like, you know, sing. And he was like, fuck, you, you have to be the lead singer with your voice. Uh, and right. he was the son of the movie's vocal coach. What's really insane, because like that's really when the band comes together when they get the lead singer. You know, they get all the, the other parts, but like really it's and kind the of... horny old man. Yeah, it, well, they, they need the lead <laughs> singer and then they need the guru, yeah, you know? Yeah. Joey yeah, the yeah. Lips Fagan, yeah, who's yeah. played with everybody, you know? And and ironically, the 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 greatest musician of the group was the only performer who wasn't a musician. 
the guy, Joey the Lips Fagan, the trumpet player who's played with everybody, Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, poor Sam. Dude, I love that part where he's going through all the musicians. But, like, he was the only dude who couldn't play an instrument. So all his shit was, like, faked. But everybody mm. else, they were all playing their instruments. Anyway, Andrew Strong, once Alan Parker heard his voice, he was just like, "You're that's the dude. And then... They just moved, you know, this other guy, I think Brian Arkins is the name. They moved him over to, to Jimmy Rabbit. You know what's always blown my mind about Andrew Strong as the lead singer in this is he is fucking 16 years old That's in this insane. movie. I, when I first found that out, I was like, no fucking way. Look at that idiot. That idiot singing something approximate music. He was 16 when they filmed this movie with that voice. I mean, that is... That is like a 40-year-old man's voice. You know? Yeah, and he looks kind of like a 40-year-old man as well. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he, do, he does. I saw like an interview with somebody like reflecting on the film like later, you know, like the 20th anniversary. And, and they were specifically talking about that casting. And they were showing like his like photos from like when he first auditioned. And they were like, we looked at him and we were like, that is not a 16-year-old boy. Like this is like a middle-aged man or something, you know? So... I mean, it, it's something that's always blown my mind about this film, but, like, he does have a set of pipes. You Man, know? I can't even imagine what Jimmy's voice sounds like, that actor. It can't even resemble. You heard it. He sings in the movie. He doesn't sing with the band, but the closing credits is him singing, and oh. there's another... Po- and the opening is him singing. Like, during the opening and closing credits, he's singing that song so oh. you definitely heard him like a couple times in the movie yeah but but not actually as a as a yeah. member of the band yeah 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 you know one thing that is kind of interesting about these two groups of people thinking about them as artists and thinking about how there's so much infighting in the commitments and in the fish that saved Pittsburgh, when there is conflict, it's not really necessarily a result of infighting. You know, it seems to be like external Mercury factors. Mercury retrograde is, exactly. the big, is like one of the biggest conflicts. That's the only conflict really <laughs> right. in the movie. Is yeah, Mercury otherwise all these guys right. are getting along. And I know that, you know, the idea, right, is that the stars are aligned. But they're, they're not always the playing good basketball. No, That's it's true. the conflict as well. Right. And they have to be coached a little <laughs> bit. But I was thinking about how in the commitments, right, they are just a cover band as a group they're never really creating anything brand new they're never I, I was surprised by the end of it that they didn't all come together and create one song i figured eventually that they would have like their one song that was like the movie's hit that that's what would really capture everybody's attention while they were also a cover band but even by the end they just remain a cover band the entire time. And it kind of shows like this is as far as they'll ever really get when you think about it. The the soul band from Ireland, you know, they're a glorified cover band. But as you mentioned, Marsh, with the idea of basketball as artistic creation, you know, they are really creating something new. They are a group of people who are creating this like first astrologically aligned basketball team, a new form of basketball 
because they all are like perfectly aligned and like in sync while the, you know, the, the commitments, they're just, you know, they're a cover band. They're, they're doing a They're shit. playing the hits, dude. They're playing the hits. Exactly. Oh yeah. So I thought that was like something interesting, like maybe a result of the infighting and the commitments versus the harmony we find with the stars and the fish that saved Pittsburgh. It's also because like on a certain level, it's hard to gauge what the actual like timeline is for how long their journey is in the commitments, you know, was this just a couple weeks really? Was this like a couple months because they do, I mean, spoiler alert, whatever, right. When the band like breaks up, I mean, they, it's, it's right on like the verge of them getting some studio time, getting to be able to go and like record some music and, you know, maybe that's what, would have then been their moment of creation. Like, all right, we got to come up with some originals here or something like that. But like, also it's implied that half the band are like basically like new musicians, you know, they're like still learning how Mm -hmm. more or less to play. I mean, the saxophone player was like, yeah, I just started recently. I, you know, this was my uncle sax, but his lung collapsed or whatever, you know, like, and, and, you know, Joey the Lips kind of coaches him. I mean, they go through two drummers. The second drummer, I guess, also had never played the drums before. They're like punk rock security guy that like suddenly <laughs> becomes their drummer, who I fucking love, you know? But like, yeah, I think that's part of it, though, Ryan, is that they're, they're learning, you know? Mm-hmm. They're just like learning what a band is. They're like learning how to create music and it's it's hard to write something original if you're still just trying to like learn how to keep time and play with a with a group of people you know totally yeah no that's definitely true but yeah i mean you know it's like i think again it's it's there's there's also a part of this that probably when it was created you know, when they were planning to make the movie, that was probably a big discussion about like, okay, well, what's the music? What songs are they going to do? And I think I read like, you know, Parker went through like thousands of songs that he was just like listening to, like thousands of soul songs to like select the the particular like sound of the film. But like, come on, they had an eye as well for like this movie's soundtrack album, you know, and selling oh, yeah. that. And, and to be totally honest, like, the musical, like the the soundtrack was way more successful financially than this movie was, you know, like that sold millions and they millions sold of two albums. Yeah. Uh, they came back for a volume two, you know, yeah. and like they, they, I mean, they eventually went on and played like live shows. Like they formed like the, the band from the movie to be like, shit, like this is what oh, people wow. like. But like this movie was a, was a financial, like, I mean, sort of weird to put it in these terms. It was a low budget film, but it, it did not make money at all. Like when it was out, you know, it subsequently became sort of a cult film and, and popular, but I think it became popular after the fact because the album sales, the soundtrack was, had, had gone around, but yeah. You know, one thing I, I think that the commitment certainly does, you know, better, uh, then, then fish in terms of like the group is giving us their sort of day to day or their their backgrounds. Yeah. We really only get in the fish that say Pittsburgh like when the team is being put together. We're sort of given these like comic skits that introduce you know the characters. One guy's a DJ. One guy's a preacher. You know, there's all these different people. This is Jack Hammer Washington, Mrs. W's boss, baby son, the dapper rapper. 
the ebony whippersnapper. Oh, the rhyme king forever on the scene. Oh, but the next time I see y'all, I won't be spinning sides, I'll be spinning ball. <laughs> so remember, this is Jackhammer, the windjammer, taking a tote. Uh, but in the commitments, they, they're committed uh, to, yeah, sort of like playing with that angle of like escapism, like music as escaping these shitty conditions, you know? So we see their factory jobs. I mean, shit, thought we were out of the slaughterhouse after in Chiang, but like, no, here we're back seeing pigs gutted, you know, in Dublin because <laughs> the torched. fucking bass player works in a slaughterhouse, you know? Uh I really like the drummer, the first drummer who gets a raw deal from Jimmy. Uh, he works in like a fucking foundry and he's just like practicing drums. Like it reminded me of like Joy Division Manchester shit. He's like playing drums in the factory, you know, like I like those flourishes yeah. uh, a lot. You yeah, know? I think that like what what really like elevates this movie beyond being just a sort of like glorified cover album you know is parker's like eye for like dublin and for like yeah. depressed dublin and not showing us a sort of caricature of ireland you know not heading to the main streets and giving us this sort of like you know emerald blarney stone kind of bullshit but he shows us like if this is what Ireland looks like. I mean, the streets are littered with garbage, you know, particularly the area that they live in, the north side, which is where the, the you know, the, the people who, you know, don't have a lot of money live. But, like, man, it's just, like, stray horses walking around everywhere, kids, like, playing in rubble piles, like, starting fires. Yeah. I mean, Oh, my God. Dude, yeah, no greater glory hours. Dude, for sure, man. I mean, like, there's even, like, a moment that's just a sort of, like, interlude during the band's, like you know, phase where they're really kind of like clicking where Jimmy goes to the, the unemployment office and man, it's like something out of like Brazil, like this just horrible, you know what I mean? Like yeah, the, yeah. the benefits office. The dole. Yeah, dude, just like gray and all these people like out of work. I mean, he's not shying away from like showing like what real Ireland, you know, in a film like looks like. And, yeah. and again, like connecting these dudes to soul, because like that's one of the most amusing parts of the film for me is like inevitably when the question comes up, you know, when everyone's like, why are you, <laughs> why are you insisting we play soul? And Jimmy, the manager, explains he's trying to like hype them all up. So he shows them like a James Brown tape. They go to the video store, you know, and like they're watching a James Brown tape. And the, the sax player asks, like, do you not think, uh, well, well, like. Maybe we're a little white for that kind of thing. Do you not get it, lads? The Irish are the blacks of Europe. Classic. But like he says, soul is the music of sex and the factory. And like Parker shows us both of that in this film, you know? In the video store, did you notice what was right behind him? Uh, Cosmatos's Leviathan. Oh, yeah. Uh, I clocked Submersible it. cinema, baby. <laughs> I clocked it. <laughs> Yeah, you you so you definitely do see much more of Dublin than you do of Pittsburgh. I I oh, really yeah. liked in Fish That Saved Pittsburgh when we got like our intro scenes with all the guys. And I will admit I was a bit disappointed by the end that we did not get subsequent sequences of like each guy in the you know in between games like in the yeah, midst. They just like, lost track of like a lot of stuff. You know, yeah. a lot of stuff gets lost in the shuffle. 
but again, that's more location photography. You know, when you're talking about what a troubled production it was, it was easier for them to fill the runtime of this movie by keeping the grand majority of it at a basketball court where they could film yeah. the games. The Civic Arena in downtown Pittsburgh. It's filmed there. You mentioning any of those kids just like playing in the rubble. Because Molly and I recently, when we went on our trip to Lisbon, we had a long layover in Dublin. And I had like an image in my mind of kind of what Dublin looked like. And I realized how much it was informed of like Dublin squalor in cinema. You know, because yeah, it was obviously very nice. And it was like a nice little layover. But watching... The commitments <laughs> when there's just kids in an alley throwing bricks at walls and just like laughing and just running <laughs> in circles. I was thinking, where's that? That's my Dublin. You know, not to say yeah. that my Dublin is like childhood poverty, uh, but I did like love that energy of just like kids surrounded by fire throwing bricks. Like to me, like that's that's Ireland, you know, gray skies. Yeah. Bricks as toys. Yeah, real Irish hours, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... Bit, I mean, I think that's the thing about both of these movies. And even, like, Jimmy sort of lays it out at a certain point, you know? When he's even, like, again, talking about soul, he's like, yeah, look, I know it's basic. And more or less, he's saying, like, I know it's basic. I know it's, like, obvious. It's almost cliche to, like, think about it in these terms, you know? And it's, like, it's, again, like... It can be kind of like hokey if you, if you really do like try to hit the nail on the head, but it's like, it's that awareness. And again, that also like earnestness that both of these films, you know, sort of reach for that make them to me just like so fun to watch, you know, because neither of these films, well, I mean, I, this may be debatable, right? But I was gonna say neither of these films stoop to like levels of trying to sort of like manufacture drama you know i mean yeah. like even the squabbles of the band like they're very like real honest squabbles it's like the everyone's kind of going their own separate way because they weren't friends they were just a group of people that came together and started making music and like they don't like each other particularly you know but they saw this as an opportunity uh but you know it's the same thing with the fish who saved pittsburgh like they're not just like manufacturing drama they don't just suddenly bring in a villainous dude i mean even they even though they have like jonathan Winter in there sort of vaguely kind of they, yeah, fucking they kidnap stock stocker channing yeah i mean but like Fake. none of that stuff like <laughs> occupies anything other than like a weird sort of like sidebar you yeah. know it doesn't yeah. become like central like i kept thinking like the kidnap plot it's like oh boy we've been here before is it commando raid time to go rescue the astrologer but like nah she just dupes the dudes and like gets to the 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 arena, you know, there's like nobody even like looks for her, you know, it's just she just like gets <laughs> yeah. off on her own. Like these movies are really just both kind of like hangout films and they're really just about like a good time and a good vibe. And even when things like don't go the way people planned or are bittersweet or whatever, like at the end of the day, they're, they're both movies that are just about like, hey, isn't this good music? Hey, doesn't basketball fucking rock, you know? And like that to me is like, totally totally fine you know i mean there's the you know like not to not to just jump to the the end of the commitments but like ultimately a lot of them you know start new bands and in new genres and i think yeah. that to me is extremely optimistic however downbeat like ah oh, this is the end of the band is it's like oh yeah well now like mika's in a punk band and so-and-so's in a jazz band and it's like 
that rocks, you know, that's really cool. Just like uh, with the fish, we're like, well, next year they're going to do some zany shit again, you know, and uh, it's going to be exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I think with the commitments, like, again, that's what I really like appreciate about it, you know, and it's like ultimate message. It's just that it's like, it isn't this movie about like, you know, reaching some sort of like, you know, I mean, what's the word I'm looking for? This like transcendent moment where everything, you've got everything figured out, you know? It's basically saying that the creative process is one of like constant growth and ultimately constant failure. And like that for for you to to be optimistic, you, you really kind of have to embrace that. You have to embrace your failures probably more so even than your successes yeah now again it's it's hard to make that point about the fish that saved pittsburgh because they just fucking win everything yeah because they just <laughs> they fucking rock because yeah. they're they're the only team that has a courtside astrologer but i mean <laughs> yeah i think like you know in in the fish too i think it's important that like they have in their uh meadow lark lemon the reverend who's like a real globe trotter um doing insane fucking tricks uh and hamming it up big time you know like that guy's a fucking legend like that guy's in the basketball hall of fame and having a sort of like barnstorming showman spectacle guy on the team i think also speaks to like yeah the reward is is the game itself like it's fun yeah it's fun to watch. That's like, it, it, it's not really doing anything more complicated than, yeah, the Gene Siskel review. Like, but again, it. like you mentioning it as like this active expression, these films are extremely optimistic about the creative process as like a structure of which to like make meaning of existence. And that's ultimately yeah. why it's so optimistic and not pessimistic. The act of creation yeah. is something that can keep us going, thinking about the future and just, literally giving us meaning i mean there's so many sequences in the commitments that i loved where they're practicing their instruments at work you know i love like the little montage of them just going through their daily tasks and they've brought their instruments with them and they're using them there was obviously ample opportunity for that to be happening in the fish that saves pittsburgh but it does you know even though it doesn't happen you you can kind of imagine it happening i mean we get a glimpse of it with the reverend bless this house and all I mean, three souls gathered here in your presence. Uh, Deacon Smith, would you please help me with the prayer? Praise the Lord. In your presence, we ask you, Lord, for your forgiveness and guidance in the trials ahead. And, uh, and, uh, we could use some help down here, Lord. Because when he's leaving his congregation and he's like lifting up his robe, you see he's got his basketball shoes on and, yeah, and he's socks. preaching in Adidas. Exactly. And to me, like that is even, even though Commitments has more scenes of them using their creative process as a way of like escaping the things that might normally make them pessimistic, to me, Fish That Saved Pittsburgh 
takes it like as far as you can go where the idea is that the creative process is is spiritual you have the reverend who is you know he's the one who's providing a structure of meaning for everyone that visits his congregation but for him you know he's he really is in it for the love of the game that's what really lights the fire inside of him right they also have a magician bullet banes the who's a mime slash magician yeah. and a, quite the ladies man oh yeah you know <laughs> yeah I really liked, man, what is that character called? I think I wrote it down. Oh, yeah, Driftwood. He's like yeah. uh, like kind of an unremarkable guy. He's just like one of the white guys on the team. Um, but d- didn't you guys think, maybe this is crazy, I thought he kind of looked like a mix between uh, James Coburn and Ron Perlman. Do you sure. see it? I can see it. I can see it. Yeah. He wasn't, he, he had a little bit more going on than just that though. If you recall, like his archetype was, was supposed to be, I think like the burnout hippie protester guy, like the activist. Wasn't that the, the, well, the rub they thought he was like, he, he protested the draft, right? That was like his thing. But but. he actually protested the NBA draft. Exactly. And went to war. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But he was like high all the time. He was yes, like the high he was. guy. Yeah. 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 My favorite guy is definitely the smaller white guy that like seems to be like notably older than everybody else that is just used as the yeah, like set shot Buford. Yeah, he's like the dummy that the, the, he gets all the 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 free throws cuz he's just throwing himself in harm's way. Dude, that sequence. By the way, I mean like I, you know, I love Jack Kehoe. Like he's one of my he's one of my like favorite like, you know, character actors if you can call him that, you know? But like when I was like Jack Kehoe's in this, there's no way he's going to be playing ball, right? And I was like, "Oh shit. Yeah, he's playing ball." But like the sequence with set shot Buford where they're like down one game, you know, they were like down big time. They're like, we need a turnaround. Like, we need something. What do we need? And it's the astrologer, I think, who comes up with the plan, right? She's the one that's like, he's going to get us back in. Only he can do it. His magic, his particular skill set. <laughs> Free throws. And so they put him in. And basically his job was just to take a bunch of charges, just take a bunch of fouls. That sequence was pretty kind of wild for me watching it because I was like, on the one hand, this this is like sound basketball strategy of being like, well, free throws can get us back in the game. But the, the, the sort of like bonkers quality of like how they were going about this also led me to believe that like no one writing that knew what basketball was, you know? like. It was insane to have all these basketball people in here and then to have the one sequence that was like really trying to get into like basketball tactics that was like kind of like kind of nuts, you know? I mean, and he's getting thrown all over the place and he gets bashed up real good in that sequence. But it does get them back in the game, you know? So who am I to question? You know, who am I to question? Jack Kehoe getting knocked around. I'm like a guy who like doesn't really know the rules of basketball exceptionally well. I love it, and I do find it graceful and to be a form of artistic expression. But even I, during that scene, was thinking, like, I don't think this is like how this works. 
You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, more or less. <laughs> different, you know? different game. I mean, you know? Yeah, I think again, I think a lot of a lot of it is, yeah, sort of sloppily constructed. Um, as much as there's like amazing shots out of nowhere, you know, but it is kind of like an incoherent mess when it comes to like narrativizing the game. You know, it's mostly <laughs> yeah. just like here's a sequence of cool shots. I mean, sometimes we're just like seeing shots go in and not even seeing who's shooting them. I mean, it's like sometimes it's truly just completely disjointed out there on the court in terms of the editing. Yeah. You know, you know what though? It is like, and, and you kind of got into this in your intro a bit, but like this is the most like ABA basketball movie I've ever seen. Yes. I mean, it is totally representative of like what you were talking about and what made like the history of the ABA always so like kind of fun for me, you know, is the way that it did like kind of, I mean, it, it, it in itself was almost sort of like confidence game. Yes. Like the, the, the goal was always to right, be acquired the, by the NBA. Yeah. yeah to get was the purpose out. of the ABA. Yeah. And they, they played to like empty stadiums most of the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like made shit up, made their own rules, like changed things and like, did in in the legacy of it all like try to and succeed in making the game so much more fun and exciting and as we've been discussing like creative i kept going back to the the dave hickey you know essay which i think we've talked about in a different episode um but dave hickey once wrote this like really great piece in comparing Dr. J to Jackson Pollock in terms of their like creative legacies, you know, and like what he said about Jackson Pollock is, well, Pollock was the the greatest and the worst thing that ever happened to art because he shattered all boundaries and made everything possible. Right. And that is good and bad. And he sort of like used that as a uh, an entry or used perhaps Dr. J as an entry into Jackson Pollock's art, you know, into like abstract expressionism in the way in which Dr. J just suddenly was like, these lines don't mean anything, right? Like this structure is totally imaginary. This, this formalism is all in your mind. And if you let go of it, you can truly fly. You know, and like I just kept thinking about that while watching it. And again, that sequence that you described, but like in general, just sort of how he's approaching what we're watching, you know, this whole act again of not even necessarily being about winning. Like his character doesn't seem to be the one who cares about winning at all. Everyone else seems to, or, you know, Stocker Channing seems to, or whatever. But, like, he just seems like he's there just to exist, in, you know, in this space and to do whatever the hell, like, feels good, you know? <laughs> like, I, I just love that. Because, again, it isn't about winning the championship. So much so that, like, there's not even, again, that, like, narrative tension. Now, obviously... As the film's unfolding, it seems to us a given that they're going to win everything. But like, even within the team, that never seemed to be the drive. That never seemed to be what was like pushing any of them. No, it really doesn't. No, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's as if the <laughs> yeah, thinking about the motivation for it all is, it, it's really like James Bond well, the Third cracking yeah, the code. You know, he's yeah, like, it's this the dreamer. is it. 
the dreamer puts it all into motion. Yeah, I got to talk about Tyrone for a second because Tyrone is like the weirdest fucking character yeah. in this movie. And like, again, I don't think any of us know who he is or what his deal is, you know, but like... <laughs> Man, he had such a weird way of interacting with everybody. And obviously, like, he's a, a young person. He's, like, a child actor. And, you know, child actors are weird. But, like, he was, like, playing this as, like, as an adult. And, like, he was, like, flirting with all the women. And, like, and did you, like, pick up on a strange vibe that he was just putting off with everybody he interacted with? That he was mature beyond his years. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe he didn't become a fucking child star. I thought he was incredibly charismatic. Yeah. 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 Have you seen Death by Temptation? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I've seen it. I've seen it. But, like, specifically, I just mean in this movie. He's older yeah. than that, though. <laughs> well, sure. No, but he's a strange presence. You're right. I <laughs> he's mean, a like, very strange he, he does often seem like, yeah, the, the most adult in the situation and also the one who is really, like, driving any kind of narrative because, yeah, the players want to play good basketball and win, but it's really Tyrone who's motivating this whole thing because he cares so much, yeah. you know, uh, just as Jimmy is the, the, the working class dreamer of the commitments. I mean, both movies have these characters who like envision something and then put it into practice. One thing that's really, really strange that I was wondering if you guys happen to see is I was curious to see what else James Bond III was in. I was trying to remind myself because I know he's in very, very little. Did you see that his IMDb page, It so it ends with Death by Temptation and then it also says he is rumored to play the father in Christian Petzold's Transit. That's like the next credit. That's not true. But that, that's like, I, of course. <laughs> but that's like <laughs> what is on his IMDb page. It says, he, James Bond III rumored to be Jamal's father in Christian Petzold's Transit. So that's so strange. Maybe he saw Death by Temptation and wanted to get James Bond in his movie. You know, though, I do, I do have to point out though something here and and you know i'm no astrologer myself you know but like i kept thinking about the core of tyrone's strategy yeah right which was like okay he's a pisces i gotta get all pisces yeah right and i was always led to believe that like the ideal ast astrological matchups are often not with your own sign that like there are certain signs which work well together and certain signs which don't work well together. And I was always led to believe that like, for example, I'm a Leo. And if wow. you got a room full of Leos together. That's Leo shit. Yeah, that's Leo shit. Maybe I don't know about Pisces that well, but like, you know, I was sort of thinking like, man, what if I was expecting, you know, the astrologer to come and be like, okay, our center needs to be a Sagittarius, you know, our guard needs to be a Leo, right? Uh, uh, I was expecting a little bit more there other than the plan just being, let's get all Pisces, you know? Now maybe, maybe a, a listener can like fire us an email and explain this to me who knows a lot more about astrology that like, yes, if Pisces are surrounded by other Pisces, then they succeed. But I was sort of feeling like, aren't they all going to cancel each other well, out here? I you can know? tell you from firsthand experience, you know, I'm a cancer and I have an overwhelming number of friends who are cancers. So I don't know what that's all about, but for me, 
I get along with my homies. Yeah, but see, so similar to you, Andy, I was really shocked that the climax of this film wasn't there being another team entirely of cancers or whatever is like the astrological <laughs> sign that is most at odds with Pisces. Because it is yeah. funny how bland it is at the end, because I don't even think Los Angeles, their basketball team, is given a name. They're just called the Los Angeles team. Yeah, but I Los thought they would just make Angeles one up. <laughs> They're like, the, the Pisces against the Los Angeles team. I'm like, but okay. But everyone on the Los Angeles team is an actual professional basketball player. So at least they right. got that going for him you got kareem connie hawkins you got ron carter who by the way ron carter you may remember ryan from uh, frederick wiseman's public housing he plays a uh, plays himself as a clinton administration hud goon who's pitching to the people of the ida b wells project that they can become entrepreneurs in the projects you just have to start a small business repairing elevators in the projects and we'll give you a tax credit for that or whatever like insane this guy, Ron Carter, he played like two seasons for the Lakers and flamed out. But he's in a Wiseman movie and he's on the L.A. team in the Fish to Save Pittsburgh. That's crazy. You need yeah, to repair insane. those elevators in Dublin that they're bringing those horses up on in the projects. Yeah. If only <laughs> if only the commitments had learned how to start small small businesses, this none, none of this would have happened. That's true. But yeah, I did like when the Fish That Save Pittsburgh and ended i like could not wrap my head around like why wasn't the los angeles like the big you know the big conflict being like not that there was just some weird astrological moment where they had to make it till midnight but instead that like oh the los angeles team it's all new players they're virgos like look out you know by the way just i need to get into some more lore here because that <laughs> whole thing of like where tyrone is like delaying the game uh within that sequence there's a, a security guard that Tyrone interacts with. Andy, did you recognize that man? He seemed very familiar to me, and he I is, was trying to put my finger on it. He is the famous sweater zombie from Dawn of the Dead, oh. who also co-produced Night Riders. So real, like, Pittsburgh shit uh, in this movie. That's where I've seen him. And <laughs> earlier... The one thing I did clock that, again, true Pittsburgh fucking movie, at the very beginning when the team breaks apart, when the Pythons break apart, one of the ball players who's like, this is fucking bullshit, I'm out of here, is Ken Foree, who is the uh, the lead in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. He's uncredited in the film. He's uncredited, but he's he's got a line even, you know? He's just like, I'm with this guy. Like, I'm fucking out of here, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> They brought in some Romero's yeah. crew for this wow. one. Yeah. That tracks. That's, that tracks. That, I guess since we're thinking about like smaller figures in this movie, I did think that Michael Gazzo was really underutilized. Oh, you, oh my God. I was waiting for you to bring this up, <laughs> he's, dude. He's the one that like in Godfather Part 2, Robert Duvall tells to kill himself like the romans yeah, so Pentangela that like they can still take yeah they can still take care of his family like the romans did <laughs> yeah he was like because he's got a great voice he was really underutilized as the trainer because he like he really blends in you know he looked great with that giant mustache and that funny hat i could have had whole scenes with like just him i love this and this wasn't i think an intentional joke but like 
you know, it's the late seventies. So he's like always got a fucking cigarette like dangling from his mouth. Yeah. And he's, he's also sometimes kind of like the trainer. Yeah. So like, there's like a moment when like Jack Kehoe, when he's just like taking all those like, you know, charges and he's just getting knocked around. Like at one point Kehoe's like almost out cold on the ground and he runs up to be like, Oh, are you okay? And he's got the cigarette dangling from his mouth and he totally just drops ash all over Jack Kehoe when he's on the ground. And again, that wasn't like a joke, you know, that it was like intended. I think it was just like, yeah, he's always got a cigarette in his mouth. Of course he's going to ash on people, you know? He's ashing on everybody. He's ashing on the players, you know? Yeah. Again, different time, you see. Yeah, you know what I totally. was else, uh, You know what else I was thinking? Um, despite us going, you know, optimism this week, recurring figure from our anger episode uh elvis has entered the building oh, once yeah. again and that's like primarily the function of uh really like the only actor i recognize in the commitments cole meany uh as like the boomer dad or whatever just being like i don't know what's going on with this whole band thing but like elvis is fucking great yeah you know elvis is the shit dude his moments Every time, and he's he's in the movie very briefly, but every time he's in there having like an Elvis moment is just so fucking awesome, dude. It's so funny to me. I love like that. Even when he's just like listening to that story, you know, that, that Joey the Lips is talking about with his time at Graceland and how Elvis's dad puked in his trumpet or whatever, you know, like <laughs> the look on his face. How enraptured he is just hearing someone who met Elvis tell a story about him, dude, is just so, so awesome. This movie made uh, a, a sort of like was part of an unofficial trilogy. Well, I guess it's it's considered a trilogy of books by Roddy Doyle known as the Barrytown Trilogy. Cole Meany is in each of the three films. <clears throat> it's this film. The follow-up was a movie called The Snapper, and the third film called The Van. Uh, I've seen all three films, neither of which are nearly as as fun as The Commitments. But you know, it's it's interesting that like Roddy Doyle, Colmini kind of had this thing that they were you know sort of like linked. Yeah, so Colmini would be in each of the subsequent films, and each one was directed by a different filmmaker. So it's a unique kind of trilogy in the sense that there wasn't a single creative, like, you know, visionary behind each of the films. They're linked by uh, Roddy Doyle's source material. And one actor. And one actor, yeah. Yeah, You love to see that kind of thing, you know? Um, Unfortunately for Gilbert Moses, he was never allowed to direct another feature film after this, although he did have a a somewhat productive career in television, but, um, you know, he represents, of course, like, you know, a lot of directors that sort of got chances in the black exploitation era guys, even like Ivan Dixon, it's like after the middle seventies, those opportunities were drying up and, you know, Moses got a chance to, to save Pittsburgh, but, uh, it wasn't in the cards. It wasn't in the stars, unfortunately. In that sense, this movie is kind of like his commitments. Yes, you know, I like the about journey that. of the band. Yep, of sort of like coming together, like trying to make it all work, shooting for the stars, missing, but like 
producing like an act of, of, of creativity along the way. And that makes the sort of like relentless optimism of the film sort of counterbalanced by like the hard truths of real life, you know, like there's something to that. And I think again, that's like sort of where I wanted to go with, with my pick with, with the commitments, you know, in that like, yeah, this like has certain elements to it that is just like, yeah, it's, it's like really bright and upbeat on a certain level. It's good music and and it's good vibes, but it, it isn't just this like success story. Like to me, that's not what optimism is. Optimism isn't about like winning, winning everything. And like, yes, in the fish that saved Pittsburgh, they win it all. (laughs) Like they win it all. (laughs) Although Tyrone's fate is still up, up for question, but that, you know, again, it's like, I imagine Gilbert Moses would maybe want to have explored, wanted to have explored like this kid, the ball boy living in poverty. Like, what is he going to do? But then it's just like, disappears from the film in favor of like a 10 minute sequence of them descending from the rafters uh, in a psychedelic blimp (laughs) I'm not kidding I wrote down in my notes dude like 10% of the movie's running time was just the entrances for the championship game this is when I was real like this is going vertical shit we're watching the entrance you know fanfare in real time dude and like that is certainly padding the running time. Like how slow that that blimp descended into the <laughs> arena, dude. I mean, it's like ten minutes of the movie, easily. Just them showing up for the final game. How they all fit in there? They're fish. <laughs> what are they doing coming in from the sky? You know, I think of birds. Yeah. You know, I think of something something in the air. But like, they're fish, and they descend in a blimp. And I know there was a fish on the blimp, but like, come on here. But know? what about when the soul band popped out of the fish sticks uh, box? You know, that was good shit, right? That was like, good. Some of this stuff did remind me, you know, like as a Sox fan, of course, like we love Bill Veck, you know, the guy in baseball who invented like the crazy promotion, oh, yeah. you know? So like I did like that aspect of like the details of like the dancers and other like corny ass Pisces stuff. But yeah, when a fucking soul band pops out of a gigantic moving fish sticks box, I'm like, <laughs> I'm here for that kind of thing. Yeah, speaking know? of disco, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Ryan, you know about that? You know about the, the riot that took place uh, at, a, at a White Sox game over Disco Demolition Night when they decided that they were going to kill Disco at a White Sox game? No, I don't think I do. Oh, my gosh. Dude, it's a story it? for another day. A story yeah. for another day, but like you should read about <laughs> I'll Disco make Demolition. It, yeah. Disco Demolition <laughs> Night, dude. Yeah, they started a riot on the south side by blowing up a bunch of disco records at a Sox game. Whoa. Wild shit, yeah. They sure did. Just a promotional night, you know? Just did a- you guys, what was your guys' favorite song in The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh? Wow. I really love the title track. I've been, like, humming Fish That Saves Pittsburgh uh, ever since I heard it that first time in the movie. But there's, I mean, there are a lot of great, great original tunes in that movie. Yeah, I was really into Mona, Queen of the Stars. You know, I yeah. really liked her, like, theme. Say, man, what's your sign? Mr. Lady of the Zodiac Come and set us on the winning track Mona You're a never-ending oracle Pisces gotta have a miracle 
Kind of like Emmanuel, Queen of the Galaxy. <laughs> a bit, a bit like Emmanuel, Queen of the Galaxy. But yeah, I mean, the Mona, the Mona theme, the Mona song was just Magic Mona was just so ridiculous. I like loved it. You know, it was, it was like to me the most coked out song of of the film. Oh yeah, I really like uh, the Chance of a Lifetime, the Four Top song because it's like sort of used as like a building bridge multiple times during like tryouts and like transitional moments and like just good vibes you know uh, so, i do like the four times just a chance of a lifetime you know get all these fish together you'll never see anything like this again you know it's funny <laughs> though i was like reading reviews it's like <laughs> janet maslin being like astrology pretty outdated you know because it's like not the fucking 60s anymore and when i watched this film i was like more people need to be watching this right now because more people are, you know, into Turn astrology. Into yeah, yeah, people are into astrology at levels like we haven't seen since the 1960s. So uh, it's in now. People should, uh, if you're into that, you know, maybe this film is not an accurate representation, but uh, <laughs> it's a fun aspect of it, you know. Absolutely, man. I mean, I think there's like, there's so much like fun stuff in this movie to just like, to just like get kind of lost in, you know, like the production design is fucking bonkers, dude. Like they're, they're uniforms, dude. I would kill for a Pisces jersey. They're like proto Miami vice colors too, you know, dude, like. they are so fucking rad, you know? And I mean, again, honestly, we were like kind of joking around about it, but like that insane, like entrance sequence, like even the Los Angeles team, like they've got a pretty like, elaborate entrance into the the stadium that kind of created like an optical illusion effect that like deep red tunnel that yeah. wasn't even a tunnel that they were just creating with like the lights in the stadium was was pretty wild man you know like yeah i i mean honestly this is like a movie i'd never seen before and i'd, I'd heard of it but didn't really know much about it at all and like i had a blast with it i mean like Again, it's like goofy, it's wonky, it's weird, it's fucked up. But like, man, this is a movie that like would defy your expectations at every turn for what you think this movie is, what it's going to be. I kept being like, this is what's going to happen next in my mind and was totally wrong. Totally incorrect. <laughs> yeah, it has no <laughs> rules. I mean, in that sense, it's pure cinema. It's like one of those movies where you you watch it and you think like I'm. This is the first time I've seen a film like this has its own logic and its own like reasoning behind how it's designed that I have like no way of anticipating what could possibly come next. It's its own yeah. unique thing. And see, that's the thing again. Going back to your point about like the commitments and like their band and like them playing the hits. It's like. 
on the other hand, the commitments is like a story that you know, you know yeah. this story, you know this journey, you know the beats, you know the, oh, we're going to bring the people together. Oh, the hard scrabble group. Oh, they're going to like, they're going to be good. They're going to get good. You know, they're going to almost make it. They're not going to quite make it, but it was about the friends we made along the way or the enemies, I guess, yeah, in this Wilson case Pickett. as well. Yeah, you know, like you've seen and heard these beats before, but like that's not the point it doesn't matter either it's like hearing a really good cover band and being like yeah these guys are pretty good like it isn't about like well they didn't write try a little tenderness they didn't write mustang sound yeah they didn't write it doesn't matter it's that they can like pick up this like well-known tune and make it theirs i gotta be honest with you like one of my all-time favorite versions of try a little tenderness is their version from this film like how it builds and how climactic it gets you know and again like the passion in it and again i don't know if you like read about parker's approach to how the music was going to be presented but like he recorded those tracks that they used within the films like in like a wild session in a room much like how they were uh, rehearsing in the film because he wanted it to have that kind of like full raw sound you know they didn't record them separately in you know sound booths you know and, and then bring all these tracks together like he was recording them like as a group in a room together playing and like again like you can hear that in the music like it sounds like a group it sounds like people playing together not again a bunch of individuals like doing their own thing and like part of the movie is like making that joke but like there is a fullness to all of their music but again it's like yeah as Jimmy said sure it's basic and it's simple but that's not really what matters what matters is like the heart behind it the, the joy behind it and like there's some really great moments that again like Parker uh, emphasizes like we've been talking about with like the back the back fighting that that breaks out in the group like in their their triumphant hour when they have their like final gig they don't know it's going to be their final gig but it looks like it's going to be the final gig like the cracks are are here uh they they have this great show and everybody is like losing their minds and they're smiling they're waving to the crowd they're they're soaking it all in they're they're grooving, they're in total sync. And then immediately it cuts to them like going back to their dressing room. Everybody is at each other's fucking throats. They're fighting. I mean, they, they get physical and then they're called in for the encore. And as soon as they're on stage, it's just all smiles. They're just total pros. They're just loving it, you know? Again, they seem like this great, happy group of friends, but like, no. They are existing only in those moments when they're on stage and they're like washed in that music. Beyond that, like they're fucking falling apart. And I just love that he gives us again that that sort of human side to what's going on here, you know? I think my favorite line in the commitments um, that kind of showcases how it's something they all cherished and held on to is when Imelda is about to go on vacation with her family to somewhere that they've like already been many times. And she announces like, I'm getting off the boat 
And I think it's like, I can't remember if it's like her boyfriend or, or somebody, but he says like, no, you are going on holiday with your folks as arranged. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm, I'm ditching y'all. <laughs> but I love like what looked like a truly miserable trip. Uh, you know, like a Dublin vacation with a, with a working yeah. class Dublin family. <laughs> yeah, she said they like rented a fucking caravan. They rented a trailer, you know. Right. Like, oh boy. My favorite joke is when uh, Stephen, the piano player, uh, is confessing in the confession booth uh, that there's been lots of cursing and, and blasphemy in this band he's in and also lustful feelings. Uh, and the, you know, like the the priest or whatever corrects him about a comment saying like, no, no, that was a Percy Sledge song. Like inter- <laughs> intervenes with soul knowledge from behind the screen, you know. Mm-hmm. Nice little touch there. Yeah. Wouldn't be a good Irish movie without some cheeky Catholic priests. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The guy with the heroin kills uh, banner, right? Love that shit. Heroin. Yeah. yeah, Heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a good movie. I mean, like, you know, on a certain level, it's, it's like, you know, there's, there's, to me, it's a struggle to sort of like pick apart and be critical of the commitments. And I know that, you know, this was a movie that like didn't also have a ton of like critical success when it came out. Although Rosenbaum seemed to kind of give it a yeah, he a says backhanded it's best film. Did he say it was his best film? Yeah, really. He said it's his most modest. Wow, and that's why he thinks it's his best film. Interesting. Yeah. So he was not probably a big fan of Angel Heart then. Don't think so. Oh man. <laughs> and I love Angel. I like Heart, Angel. Dude. Heart. Yeah. yeah. Crazy movie. Yeah. God, I saw Angel Heart. I feel like at the age of like eight because my yeah. parents were big Angel Heart heads. <laughs> like, oh, it's so good, and I oh, I hated it so much because I was eight. Or yeah. how, even if I yeah. was 10, I was just like, what the hell? Oh, my God. You didn't realize it was about Satan. Right. Like, I couldn't experience the real, like, atmosphere of that film, you know? Ugh. Bit of a misfire there. I'm sure Angel Heart's cool. I should revisit Angel Heart. Well, you know, despite uh, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, uh, you know, having a lot of detractors, it, it's also had some some fans over the years. Uh, you know, uh, historic Pennsylvania quarterback Donovan McNabb is on the record as being a fan. <clears throat> and more obviously, you know, who's a huge fan of of this film, Shaquille O'Neal, who uh, I read <laughs> called for uh, a remake of this film at some point in the last few years. Hell so yeah. uh, Shaq's, uh, Shaq's on my wavelength, you know. He's hey, like you <laughs> said, astrology's back, dude. Like, you got to bring it back. Yeah. It's such a weird record, man, like of a time, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it seems so hopelessly behind the times and so hope, so excitingly like ahead of the times. Like it is just one of the weirdest movies I've ever watched. And and I, I really did love it. I mean, I did. Well, uh, these were our optimistic, uh, groups. Yeah. Hope we, you know, lifted your spirits. I know, like, everything sucks. The world's ending these days. But I hope, like, these movies both kind of gave you something to, to, to hold on to, to find a bit of brightness in the, in the bleak world and bleak times in which we live. No, yeah, they, they definitely did. I think that one thing that you both really cracked the code in terms of this prompt was what you were, you were getting at there, Andy, about optimism where it can't all just be, you know, sunflowers and sunshine. Like you need something 
that your optimism is sort of responding to if there is a bit of strife and struggle and hardship in your you know in your surroundings that kind of like encourage you to like potentially think about things positively instead of getting lost in pessimism and i guess when i was thinking about other films that kind of scratch that optimistic itch and capture that sensation i was thinking about the great sort of semi-documentary film, The Comfort of Strangers, the Canadian film from 1990, which is about like a group of old women that all gather at this cabin. And then they have these kind of like ad-libbed conversations. And it is, you know, largely about their struggles and their hardships in life. But the film ultimately is about you get a bunch of old ladies together and have them like chat. It feels like absolutely anything is possible and that it, it it feels like perfect astrology that the stars are aligned and like you will find no other like transcendent beauty that excels beyond this you know so i would i the comfort of strangers is one of the most like joyous was it the company of strangers yes yes <laughs> yeah. So Great yeah, movie, company though. of good strangers. Vibes. Yeah, very good vibes. Yes, and again, like it's funny how it kind of links up with these films. It's hard to make a really optimistic film about like a loner, you know, or like just a purely uh, kind of like exceptional individual. These are all films about a collective. It's about a group of people, you know, coming together, syncing up, making meaning of their lives. And yeah, the company of strangers is, I think, one of the most optimistic films I've ever seen. And I would, I would walk, run, 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 don't walk. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's a really beautiful film. And I would also just throw in, last week I, I had mentioned one of the reasons I wanted to go optimistic mode was because I revisited Straight Story, the David Lynch film. Uh, and that is like one of the most beautiful optimistic films of all time just a film about forgiveness you know and the possibility of forgiveness for, from someone who was sincere and really believes in it it's it's lovely but yeah so thank you you did warm my heart you gave me reason to keep fighting marsh now that i've uh, got an optimistic view of the future what do i have to look forward to um next week for your topic well, I think I want to kind of like ride the wave here. You know, I think for us, optimism was, uh, like you said, not something we're normally about, you know, we're sort of out of our comfort zone a little bit. And in this last week, I was catching up on some newer films and I watched Funny Pages, the Owen Klein movie, and I and I liked it well enough, you know. Uh, but in particular, there's this amazing scene where, you know, the, the teenage like main character is in this like disgusting basement bedroom with these old guys and they're like sweating profusely because they live <laughs> like next to the boiler. Uh and they're watching on a laptop, like, this old movie. And these kids, these teenagers, are like, oh, what are you watching? And they're like, Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef with Robert Wagner and Richard Boone. Do you know Richard Boone? He played Paladin on TV. Uh, and this guy's just, like, sweating, and it's so disgusting. And I love to see in a movie that is primarily, of course, about, you know, the aspirations of a young comic book artist, uh, some cross uh, you know, solid cross arts solidarity, a good moment of like watching cinema scope on a laptop with sweaty guys. But, um, I was thinking then to sort of push us out of our comfort zone, uh, again, you know, sort of inspired by watching that. Uh, I want our topic next week to be 
funny pages. Bring me your comic strip, comic book, graphic novel adaptations, anything from that particular visual narrative art to the screen. You never thought we would do something like comic book movies, right? Well, oh man, <laughs> we're fucked. Hell yeah, let's go, dude. I love it. I love it. Uh oh. Yeah. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I'll be damned. Team ain't gonna roll over and surrender to no clock. No way. Such a 14 years out there barnstorming for peanuts, man. Not gonna let the gold slip through your fingers now, are you? New truth. Talking about taking shitty bounce after shitty bounce just to get to the bridge. No man alive should stop you from crossing over. And you, Jackson, you spent your whole life telling people what you thought they should do in a situation just like this one. Let that faith you've given those followers desert you. We're all men. If the time is now for us to be tested, then let it happen. Don't you see? The astrology thing is just a mirror for us to look into. And A, put there to give us a little bit of guidance. Sometimes. When we got here, because our magic's made of sweat and strain and pride. That's what I'm taking back out on the goddamn court. If you cats are real men, and I know you are, you're gonna come back out there with me. And you're gonna have fire in your hearts. And you're gonna have blood in your eyes. And then we're gonna do what we came here to do. (laughs) 